In January 1989, Don Piper was traveling on a old country road south of Houston when he was hit head-on by an 18-wheeler. Emergency vehicles arrived and worked on him, but four paramedics pronounced him dead at the scene. Also, a pastor drove by, saw the accident, pulled over and offered to help and asked if he could pray for the deceased man. And of course, he said yes. And so this pastor began to pray for Don uh, for some time, about an hour. And after a little over an hour, uh, Don began to show signs of life, miraculously. Of course, everyone was shocked and they quickly put him into an ambulance and rushed him to the hospital where he spent over 13 months recovering from his catastrophic injuries. Um, Many years later, Don Piper wrote a book about his experience, what happened immediately after the accident and his view of heaven, his experience of heaven. In fact, the title of the book is 90 Minutes in Heaven, where he talked in great detail about the reunion that he experienced and what he saw in heaven. And uh, it sold, I think, six million uh, copies, New York Times bestseller, made into a motion picture. Uh, Don Piper's story is not altogether unique. Over the last 10 years, there have been many other uh, books come out about people who had near-death experiences and that went to heaven and what their experience in heaven was like. And I have to just be honest with you, there's a part of me when I see books like that, I'm kind of intrigued. Obviously, I'm kind of curious about it. Probably you are too. But I also kind of read books like that with one eye shut, you know, in a sense that I'm like, okay, you know, did this really happen? And it, is this really true? I mean, there's a, a positive sense of skepticism, you know, that you have to have when you're discerning what is true and what's not. And, you know, is that really what heaven is like? But what you're going to read today is the most accurate, the most reliable view of heaven that you will ever read. Because what we're going to read today is written by the Apostle John uh, in God's Word, and it's a picture of what heaven is like, all right? You want to know what heaven's like? You want to know what, what you're going to experience when you get to heaven? What's even happening now in heaven? Well, get your Bible out, open up with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going to be uh, today. Uh, you'll be interested to know that Revelation has more about heaven in it than any other book in the Bible. We're constantly seeing visions of heaven and then on the earth, been back to heaven and back to earth again. So we learn a great deal about heaven uh, from the book of Revelation. And you may be asking the question, well, why is it even that important that we study about heaven? I mean, after all, isn't there enough to go on in the earth right now that I need to be worried about, uh, that I don't really need to think about heaven? But I think it's important that we study about heaven. And here's why. Because how you see heaven really changes the way you live on the earth. How you see heaven changes the way you live on the earth. If what you know about heaven affects what your priorities are here, what, what you do with God here, how you respond to the gospel here, how you treat other people here, how you endure suffering and hardship, all that is shaped by your view of heaven. And so what we're gonna see today is John's view, John's glimpse of heaven. So look at it with me, Revelation chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 1. And this is the word of God. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. <clears throat> the first voice 
that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now stop right there for just a minute. John has just transcribed seven letters uh, to seven churches. That's in chapter two and chapter three. And now the, the scene changes and he has this vision of heaven. This door is open and he hears a voice saying, come up here, I'm gonna show you what must soon take place. Now, some people, when they read uh, chapter, uh, Revelation 4, verse 1, uh, they say, oh, it's the rapture. This is the rapture. Revelation 4, 1 is the rapture, right? And uh, wrong, that, that's, this is not uh, the rapture. If it is, it's a rapture of one, okay? Because only John is going up. He's the only one uh, that sees this vision. The only one caught up to see the vision. Uh, this is, John is caught up. Uh, in a trance, we'll see in verse 2, he says he was in the Spirit. This is much like the Apostle Paul when he said, I was caught up to the third heaven. Or like Isaiah when he saw into the throne room of God. Or, or Daniel when he sees a vision. Or Ezekiel sees a vision. This is more in line with these men where heaven was open to them in a vision. Okay? Uh, and John is going to see some things. In fact, he's going to see three things uh, in heaven. The first thing he's going to see, if you're taking notes, jot this down. First main point, uh, John is going to see that there's a throne in heaven. There's a throne in heaven. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Now stop there. Uh, many of you probably watched the funeral of Queen Elizabeth this week. Historic moment when the Queen of England had died. Immediately upon her death, her son Charles ascended to the throne. Well, when we see uh, heaven open through John's eyes, the first thing John sees is a throne. There's a throne in heaven. All of heaven, all the activity of heaven is revolving around this throne. This throne is the centerpiece of heaven. It's actually mentioned 14 times in this chapter. The throne is mentioned 46 times in the book. It's the throne of God. The throne of God. And, and here's John. I mean, I, gosh, I feel sorry for him. He's trying to somehow articulate in words what he's seeing. And trying to articulate this person, this figure that is on the throne. And he said, you know, it's kind of like, uh, like Jasper and Carnelian Stone. Well, what does that even mean, right? Uh, well, Jasper was a, a, a clear, uh, translucent-like uh, stone, much like crystal, much like a diamond, all right? And so he says here, what the ones here on the throne had this brilliant, translucent, diamond-like appearance, uh, refracting the light that was emanating from the throne. Psalm 142 says, the Lord wraps himself in light like a garment. So it was a bright light, a reflective light. But he also said it's like a carnelian stone. Carnelian stone is a dark red um, and so some think that's an allusion to the judgment of God. Some think the allusion to the blood of Christ. We really, we really don't know. It's interesting, both Jasper and Carnelian are on the breastplate of the high priest. 
So this was significant to the Lord. And we're going to see even Jasper later on in Revelation 21 and 22 as a description of the new Jerusalem. But he also saw a rainbow, this rainbow. And we're not sure if this rainbow was like a, a, a vertical rainbow, like uh, out of the throne, or if it's like a horizontal rainbow ringing out uh, from the throne, we're unsure. Uh, it's certainly a circle uh, reminding us of God's covenant love that never ends in Genesis chapter 9. What he sees here is a throne. There's a throne in heaven. This is the same throne that Isaiah saw when he said, I saw the Lord seated upon the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's the same throne we read about in Psalm 47, 8. God sits on his holy throne. The same throne that Daniel saw when he said the ancient of days took his seat in Daniel 7, verse 9. The same thing that Ezekiel saw when he said high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man in Ezekiel 1, 26. There's a throne in heaven. And, and he also not only saw a throne in heaven, but he saw things around uh, the throne in heaven. Check out uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like, flying, like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes all around and inside. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. John saw the throne. He also saw things around the throne. Uh, first he saw uh, 24 elders. Now who are these, verse 4, who are these 24 elders? A lot of ink has been spilt over the years, trying to write down uh, who are these 24 elders. Some people think they are angels. Um, uh, some think they represent a priestly rank of the Old Testament. Uh, that could be true. Uh, but let me just point out something. It's good to interpret the Bible with the Bible. Amen? And so if you look at in, in back in the letters, uh, in chapters 2 and 3, to the churches, to the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2.1, uh, Jesus wrote, be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. A crown of life. To the church at Sardis, he said, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. Revelation 3, 5. To the church at Laodicea, he said, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Revelation 3, 21. So you have believers here that are wearing crowns, dressed in white, on thrones. So to me, when I, uh, when I uh, see these 24 elders, uh, my opinion is that these represent all of God's people. 
This represents the redeemed. Whoever they are, they represent the deemed. Maybe the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles, uh, they are referenced in that way in Revelation 21. So this could be uh, the case, but they represent uh, the redeemed, the people of God. And then you have these four living creatures. These are kind of weird fellows here, okay? Uh, four living creatures. Uh, one looks like a lion. One looks like an ox. One looks like a man and, a, and an eagle. You say, well, what are these? Well, uh, we can say with pretty much certainty that these are angels or some kind of angelic uh, beings. Uh, Ezekiel 1.4, Isaiah 6.2 uh, seem to reference them. Now, uh, let me just warn you, there's going to be no precious moments figurines that look like these uh, four living creatures, all right? You're going to see this on the windowsill of your grandma's bathroom, okay? Uh, uh, this, these are serious, weird-looking angels. Uh, one ha has a face like a lion, one like an ox, one like an eagle, one like a man. Uh, and these, of course, represent the covenant love of God for all his creation. Uh, look up Genesis 9.10 and you see a reference to birds, livestock, wildlife, and mankind. And, and what are they doing? What are these four living creatures uh, doing? Well, they're just crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come day and night forever and ever. They continually shout out the praise of God. They're crying out in worship. And as they worship, John heard thunder, peals of thunder and flashes of lightning. You know, I grew up in West Texas and we could always see a storm coming. It was so flat and there weren't any trees, right? You could see a storm 50 miles away come rolling in. And we were, always, we were always made sure we watched if we could see green up in the clouds because we knew hail was coming. And if you saw lightning and you would watch the rotation of the clouds to be sure no tornado would drop out of it because the storm was coming. And I can remember even as a kid when the thunder would roar and the lightning would flash, how terrifying that was. This seems to be God's exclamation point of his judgment. In fact, you see it after every season of judgment at the, at the end of the seventh seal in Revelation 8, 5, there's thunder. At the end of the seventh trumpet in Revelation eleven nineteen, 19, he thunders. At the end of the seventh bowl in Revelation 16, 18, he thunders. Like a gavel crashing down, God thunders his judgment. And when they heard the thunder and they saw the lightning, the, the 24 elders fall on their faces and they cast their crowns before the feet of him who sits on the throne and they begin to worship him and they say, you are worthy because you created all things. God, everything that has been made, you created it, God. You are worthy of worship because you've created everything. Now listen, I've got some good news. Are you ready for some good news? <laughs> all right, get ready to say a really big amen, all right? First service, botch this. Don't do it in the second service, all right? <laughs> you ready for some good news? All right, here's some good news. There's a throne in heaven. All right, come on, you can do a little bit better than that, all right? All right, hey, hey, here's some good news. There's a throne in heaven. That's right. You know what that means? That means that when the world seems chaotic, there's a throne in heaven. 
When the world seems out of control, there's a throne in heaven. When it looks like evil is winning and the righteous are on the run, hey, there's a throne in heaven. And we can know that for sure. That's so encouraging. You say, well, what's so encouraging about that? Because there's a throne in heaven that means that God's in control, right? That he is ruling, that he is reigning. I remember always hearing uh, people when I was a young kid in church, maybe some elderly saint saying, uh, well, you know, God's on his throne. And you know what? That's exactly right. Somebody say amen to that. Yeah, he is on his throne. He is in charge. He is in control. He is sovereign, he, there's a throne in heaven. It also means that God's going to execute justice on the earth. So many times we see people skating and, and, and justice is never really served or justice is corrupted on this earth. And we cry out for justice, but justice will come one day when he will right every wrong and he will punish those who deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that, that each of us will give an account of himself to God. God's on his throne and he will deal with every person justly. God's on his throne. Here's another thing it means. It means that he's uh, the center of the universe and not you. Go shocker, right? It's not me. I'm not the center of the universe. No, you know, you're not. Uh, God's the center. Everything in heaven is revolving around him. He created it all. He holds it all together. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. There's a throne in heaven. Never forget that. When things are crazy, there's a throne in heaven. But John also saw something else. Not only did he see a throne in heaven, but he also saw that there's a lamb in heaven. Write that down. There's a lamb in heaven. Look at Revelation 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the, of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. All eyes of heaven now are fixated on this scroll that is in the hand of the one seated on this throne. And you say, well, what exactly is this scroll? Well, a lot of people are, have debated over what this scroll is. I will just tell you what I think it is. I believe that he's describing here the, the title deed to the earth. That this is, this is, in this scroll, God's plan to take back his creation and to make it new. To redeem God's people and to punish the enemies of God. That's the scroll. That's in the scroll. And there's a voice that goes out saying, is there anybody worthy to take this scroll and break its seals and, and, and reclaim God's people and execute judges, judgment and, and redeem the world? And you may say, well, why does the world need to be redeemed? I thought you just said in chapter four, God created everything. Well, I did. Uh, chapter four, God created everything. And yet when sin came into the world, uh, sin corrupted what God created. Right? When sin came to the world, sin came in through Adam's uh, sin permeating even creation. Romans 8 says that the whole created world, the physical earth, groans under the weight of sin, longing to be redeemed. And we feel that even in our own hearts, right? We are sinful, fallen people. We live in a sinful, fallen world. Is that true? We're, we, we see it all the time. And... Uh, is there anybody worthy to take this world back and restore it back to the way it was created to be? 
And he said uh, he found no one. No one. No one worthy to reclaim the world. No one worthy to make it right again. No one worthy to fix the brokenness that we feel. And it says that John began to weep. In fact, the the word here is to weep severely, to heave, to weep uncontrollably. Why is John weeping? Because his tears are our tears. Anyone who knows what it's like to stand next to a grave of someone who is dear to you understands those tears, to weep. Anyone who's ever felt abused or abandoned because of sinfulness around them, anyone who has been the victim of a senseless crime, anyone who has ever felt rejected or abused or oppressed in the earth, anyone who has ever felt disappointed in life or kicked to the curb or isolated and sitting at home and there's no one to care for you, the the brokenness that when we weep and we say, God, why is it this way? God, why don't you do something to fix this broken world? That's the tears of John. He cries our tears. There was no one worthy to fix this. And as he's weeping, look at what we read in verse 5. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look. I love that. Don't weep. Look. The the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures among the elders and the seven with he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on uh, the throne. All right, now, folks, this is really good news here, all right? Jesus is in the building. He's like showing up, all right? I mean, he's like, hey, John, hey, hey, it's all right, man. Uh, don't, don't cry, don't cry. There's somebody, look, look, the lamb, look, the root of David. You understand the depth, the meaning of these titles? He is the lion of Judah. This goes all the way back to John four, uh, Genesis 49 when, when, uh, when it was proclaimed that through the tribe of Judah would come the lion, the Messiah, the king of kings. The root of David was prophesied that the Messiah would come through the lineage of King David. And so he is the one that, that has come. The lion is here. Uh, the root of David is here. Uh, the lamb is here. He turns around, he looks, he sees a lamb. Or he's like, what? Uh, a lamb, and not only is it a lamb, but it's a lamb that looks like it's been slain. It's bloody lamb. He bears uh, the marks of mortal wounds. And not only that, but he... He has some weird horns. Notice uh, John the Baptist, he said of Jesus uh, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's our Passover Lamb. He's the one who died in our place so that the wrath of God would pass over us. He had seven horns and seven eyes. What's, What's all of that? 
Well, of course, you know by now that John loves the number seven, right? There's seven churches, seven letters, seven bowls, seven trumpets, uh, uh, seven seals, uh, seven horns, seven eyes. Uh, Seven represents totality, completeness, right? So seven horns represents that he is totally powerful. The horn was a power of an animal. So this is the lamb, but he has all power. Theologians like to use the term uh, omnipotent, right? All-powerful. And then he's got seven eyes, all right? It looks kind of creepy, but uh, seven eyes can see everything, knows everything. So theologians like the term omniscience, meaning I, he knows everything. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, this Lamb of God who was slain. And look at what he does. He, look, check out uh, he, verse 8. Uh, and when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. When, when this lamb of God steps into the throne room and he takes the, sea, the, the scroll of the seven seals, he's the only one worthy that can do that. And they're just like, oh my gosh, he is here. The lamb has come. And when he, Jesus steps up, the, all of heaven falls down, right? And they fall down in worship of Jesus. He is worthy. He is worthy. It says the 24 elders, they have a harp, all right, and they, and they fall down with their harps. I guess this is where the cartoon comes, where we're all up there playing harps, right, and have floating on a cloud playing harps, all right. I don't think you're going to have to worry about that. You probably won't play a harp in heaven uh, unless you play a harp on the earth, all right? Then maybe, maybe you will play a harp in heaven. But uh, the point here is that they are worshiping this lamb, who has come, King Jesus, they're worshiping him. And they offer up, not only their worship, they offer up incense. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Look at what it says. It says, they offered up the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, I want you to think about that. This is this climactic moment in heaven. Who is worthy? No one. And then Jesus comes in. He, he is worthy. He is the lion, the lion of Judah. He is the root of David. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. He steps up and he takes the scroll. He's going to take everything back into his hands. He's going to make all things new again. And all of heaven falls to worship King Jesus. And, uh, and there are the, offered up as incense the prayers of the saints. That's like your prayers, my prayers. Think about that. In the midst of the grandeur of this moment, there there are prayers. They're on his mind. He's moving in response to the prayers of his people. I don't know about you, but you ever uh, go through a hard time and you pray and you go, I just don't think God's hearing me. I don't think that my prayers are going anywhere. I don't think that my prayers are going past the ceiling. I don't really think that God is hearing my prayers. Whenever you feel that, I want you to get out this verse. I want you to read it. Because Jesus always moves in response to his people. He is moving. And in his time and in the right time, he will make all things new again. 
He will make it all new again. So there is a throne in heaven. There is a lamb in heaven. But let me give you this last one. There is a new song in heaven. I love this. Look at verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Just circle the two words, new song. The response of heaven to the glory of Christ is worship. Did you get that? Let me just say that one more time just to punctuate it, all right? The response of heaven to the glory of Jesus is worship. In fact, the word worship simply means to attach worthiness to something or someone. To say you are worthy and that's what they're doing when, when Jesus takes the throne, uh, takes the scroll and they fall down. They're saying, Jesus, you are worthy of all of our worship. And why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Well, look at it. Look at verse 9. It tells you why. Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Well, when did Jesus do that? We did it on the cross, right? On the cross, listen to me. On the cross, Jesus purchased you. On the cross, his substitutionary atonement was for you, that by his blood and through his sacrifice, you have been bought back, redeemed back uh, for him. And he bought back people from every language and every tribe and every people group all over the world. He He has purchased them by his blood. And he said, because you have done that, you are worthy. Listen, no one has ever done that before. And guess what? No one will ever do that again. Only King Jesus. And so he said, because of that, you are worthy. And they begin to worship him. Now here's what I want you to understand. Worship is not about us. Worship is not about our preferences. It's not about what songs we like. It's not about what instruments we enjoy. I don't think any of the, of the 24 elders uh, went home that afternoon and well, I was really into that worship, uh, you know, today. You know, they kept singing that same song over and over. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It's a little repetitious. We need, we need something else. You know? No, they didn't ever do that. You know why? Because worship is all about who? Hello? Y'all know the answer to that, right? All right, let's say it with a loud, loud, strong voice. Worship is all about, it's all about Jesus. 
And so our worship is in response to who he is and what he has done. And so all of heaven worship, you are worthy. And so when we worship, it's not about what we're getting, it's about what he's getting. It's not about who we are, it's about what who he is. It's not about what we've done, it's about what he has done. It's not about what we like, it's about what he likes. It's not what we deserve, it's about what he deserves. And when we worship, we're joining in with God and all of heaven in celebrating all that Christ has done. That's what worship is. Amen. Let's celebrate that. Isn't it it amazing that we get to participate with heaven even now while we're on the earth in worshiping him? So John has a vision of heaven. The door was opened. Remember I said at the very beginning of the message, I said how you see heaven uh, changes the way you live on the earth. If you really believe that there's a throne in heaven, then you will not give up hope when things go bad or things are difficult. If you really believe there's a, a lamb in heaven, that you will run to him for mercy because he is the only one that can save you from your sins. And if you really believe that there's a new song in heaven, then there will be something welling up within you that wants to join in that song. <laughs> and praise him with all that he is. Lord, I uh, thank you, God, for this passage. Lord, it just stirs my heart, God. We want to worship you like that. Lord, forgive us when we have uh, just yawned our way through a song or allowed our mind to be distracted when you are so worthy, Jesus, of our worship all that we are even now in heaven you are receiving worship Lord I pray that today our worship here on earth would intertwine with the worship of heaven and that you would be exalted you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy we love you Lord Jesus and we worship you now